Amen. All right, let's take the Word of God together this morning, and I'd like for you to turn to Isaiah chapter number 40. Isaiah chapter number 40. Uh, Last week we concluded our exposition of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We will be dealing with that book in the coming days, but we are going to begin a series this morning that I've simply entitled, The God of All Comfort. The God of All Comfort. Comfort. As we turn to Isaiah 40, I want us to read this morning verses 1 through 8. Uh, Primarily this morning, this will be an introduction to this series. We'll be uh, dealing with a number of passages today that will be expressing the subject we're going to be dealing with and taking for our our, our title this morning, which is simply entitled Sovereign Comfort. Sovereign Comfort as we begin the series entitled The God of All. Comfort. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse number 1, and we're going to read down through verse number 8. Isaiah, writing here, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass." The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. As we introduce this series this morning, The God of All Comfort, which is primarily going to be an exposition of Isaiah chapter number 40. Now, for our regular church attenders and members, we are, of course, used to going through an entire book uh, just as we finished First Thessalonians. Uh, but this particular series is going to be going through a chapter out of the book of Isaiah chapter number 40. That's going to be our starting point. But I will tell you that throughout this series, we will be referencing a number of different passages that deal with this particular subject of God's comfort. And I don't know a person, I have never met a person who is a child of God, who's a believer, that doesn't desire the comfort of God. I've never met one who says, I want everything God has to offer, but I don't want God's comfort. As a matter of fact, it is a common theme. I want the comfort of God. Now, throughout this time, as we look at Isaiah chapter number 40, we're going to be looking at these other texts. And even this morning, primarily, will not be even beginning the exposition of Isaiah 40 as much as it will looking at the context of the times when comfort of God is mentioned. And we'll be dealing this morning in just a little, little while with three particular thoughts regarding the comfort or the sovereign comfort of God. Now, in order to understand what we're dealing with today, we need to understand what the Bible teaches about the comfort that is found in a sovereign God. As we take for the subject for today, southern com- or sovereign comfort, we must define sovereign. Now, sadly, there is no doctrine that is more despised by the natural sinful mind than the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Human pride in and of itself despises the suggestion, despises the idea that God orders everything, that God controls everything, and that because He orders and controls everything, He rules over everything. 
The carnal mind, we have to remember, the mind that is apart from God will always burn with a desire that is against God because they do not want to see or hear the biblical teaching that nothing comes to pass except that which God himself has decreed. Now, of the sovereignty of God, most people would say, I will certainly take God's comfort, but where man scoffs at it, and sadly man scoffs at even this idea in our churches, is that salvation is entirely a work of a sovereign God. Because it tells us this, if God chose who would be saved, and if his choice was settled before the foundation of the world, then believers, as we know, we learn throughout our scripture teaching here, that believers deserve, nor can they take any credit for any aspect of their salvation. Everything that exists in this world and in the universe, even the unseen universe, that which we cannot see, only exists because God allowed it, decreed it, and called it into existence. Psalm 115.3, I'm going to give you these references and I've got them written down so you can turn there, but I'm going to move quickly. Psalm 115.3 says this, but our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 135.6 Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. Ephesians 1.11 He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Romans 11.36, for of him and through him and to him are all things. 1 Corinthians 8.6, but to us there is but one God the Father of whom are all things and we in him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by him. Now admittedly, these truths... And the truths we're going to be dealing with as we deal with a sovereign God who is the God of all comfort, these are difficult truths for the human mind to embrace. But the Bible and the Scriptures are clear that God does in fact control all things right down to choosing who will be saved. Now, knowing what we know about a sovereign God, what comes to your mind when you consider and you put the word comfort with the word sovereign? That is a great thought this morning. If I have a sovereign God, the God of all comfort, who controls and rules and orders all things, don't I find my greatest source and sense of comfort in this world and in the world to come? If God doesn't order and control and rule over everything, how could he provide me comfort? You see, I can't even provide lasting comfort. But a sovereign God provides comfort because he rules and orders and controls. So man, again, by his very nature, is inclined to deny the idea of a sovereign God, but is very quick to run towards the idea of comfortable things. In other words, man wants to be comfortable. Man wants to have a comfortable job. He wants to have a comfortable family. And I would say he wants to even have a comfortable church. Yeah. We want comfort. But comfort in and of itself is not a wrong thing. It is not wrong to desire comfort. However, man's greatest error is this. In what or in whom do I seek out comfort? And often man's greatest error is this. I'm trying to find comfort in the wrong thing and in the wrong person. I'm trying to find comfort in my job. I'm trying to find comfort in my church. I'm trying to find comfort in those things that make me comfortable instead of realizing my comfort is not found in those individual things. My comfort is found in a sovereign God. That is a great source of hope this morning. That's why this is so important. 
Man makes his greatest error when he seeks out comfort in something that cannot provide comfort. The only source of lasting comfort is found in a sovereign God. Imagine what comfort you could have this morning when you fully acknowledge the fact that God is sovereign instead of trying to deny it and go about saying, I just don't buy that God is sovereign because you are still struggling with the idea that God needs you to accomplish His purposes, and He does not. He Himself has promised throughout His Word to provide what we need. Sovereign comfort. Now, if you look at Isaiah 40, look at verse number 1 and 2. Now again this morning, we're going to go against our, what is our normal routine. I'm not going to expound these two verses today. We're going to deal with that beginning next week. But I want us to look at those verses again, specifically verse number 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. I would encourage you to circle the, the words, expression, my people. Saith your God. Speak ye comfortable, comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now again, we at our church are used to just diving right in, and I'm going to tell us to resist that temptation this morning because we're going to begin building and looking about the principles and the passages that remind us of a sovereign God. But I do want to give you quickly a couple of thoughts to consider regarding sovereign comfort. Number one, you see in these verses that God does desire that His people would be comforted. That tells us something about mankind. God knows we are going to need comfort. Why? Because we are not always going to be strong. We are not always going to have it together. We are not always going to be what we should be. But yet God in these verses uses the word comfort or comfortably we see there at least three times. Comfort, comfort, and comfortably. So God desires His people to be comforted. We do not do dishonor to his name when we are when we find ourselves uncomfortable however we we ought to remember that we are not honoring his name properly when we lack holy comfortable joy comfort that comes from god in other words god wants us to be comforted There is never a moment in time when God says, I don't want my people to be comforted. Now again, sometimes we go astray. We sin against God. We're under His chastening hand. But I want you to understand something. Being under the chastening hand of God does not mean He does not want you comforted. That's one of the mysteries of the sovereign hand of God is how can I be under chastening and yet still be comforted? Because that's how good God is. God's people should find their greatest comfort and their greatest joy in a sovereign God. The Lord is telling Isaiah to go and preach to my people. I realize the context. This is Israel. This is Jerusalem. I understand. And we're going to see this principle throughout Scripture. But the Lord Himself is telling Isaiah, I want you to go and preach over and over and over again. Preach comfort to my people. Isaiah uses words like warfare, iniquity, and sins, and yet in the same breath uses the word Isaiah, comfort them. Times when we are under a sense of warfare or we're under the chasing hand of God, but yet God still appears in His grace to His people and He says words like this, your warfare is accomplished God, in His sovereignty, returns back and grants forgiveness of sins and continues to be merciful to His people. That is sovereign comfort. So as we think about this, Isaiah, as we'll learn over the coming weeks, commissioned by a sovereign God to not only preach the gospel. Remember, we're taking one chapter out of a great book of Isaiah. 
And we don't want to do disservice to the context. This is not the entire message of the book of Isaiah. In the same book of Isaiah, Isaiah is commissioned to also go and preach the gospel to the unsaved. But at the same time, he's told to feed the flock of God and he's told to comfort the people. He's been given quite a commission. Preach the gospel to the unsaved, feed the flock of God, and also, by the way, Isaiah, don't forget to comfort my people. Now, for anybody who's ever preached the word of God, either as their calling in life or been asked to preach one time, that is the call of every pastor. That pastor is called to preach the gospel, feed the flock, and provide comfort to those people by pointing them to the sovereign comfort of God. That is what is at stake here. That's what Isaiah is being told to do. Again, notice that phrase, and I had you circle it, my people. That phrase assures the believer that there is a lasting relationship with the sovereign God. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we begin this morning, why would Isaiah be told by God to preach this reminder to his people? I ask ourselves the question, shouldn't his people already know this? I would say the answer to that is yes, we should already know that. And the same reason that God is telling Isaiah to preach to the people is the same reason you and I need to have it preached to us. See, it's one thing to say the God of all comfort. It's another thing to say our God is the God of all comfort. Our God. When we refer to the word our, we're referring to a God of all comfort. This morning, I want us to really look at three headings, and we're going to be going to three separate passages of Scripture this morning. And we may or may not return to Isaiah 40 this morning, but we are going to deal with a couple of thoughts regarding how or why do we need to be reminded of this if we are his people. The first heading I want us to consider this morning is number one, we as his people often refuse, and I've said that right, often refuse to be comforted by a sovereign God. We as his people often refuse to be comforted by a sovereign God. I want you to turn to the Psalms and turn to Psalm 77. And again, again, against our normal nature, this is not going to be a full exposition of Psalm 77. But it is going to be a look into this idea of sometimes God's people refuse to be comforted. Psalm 77, look at verse 1. This is a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. Notice that promise. I cried and he listened. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night, and here it is, and ceased not my soul, refused. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Asaph is asking some very serious questions. Hath God, look at this, hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in his anger shut up his tender mercy? Selah, by the way, every question that Asaph is asking, he's asking hypothetically because none of these things can be. And I said... This is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? This psalm is a psalm of healing sorrow. It opens with Asaph declaring a determination. He's doing the right thing. 
I'm going to cry to God. Folks, that's always right to cry to God. And then he proceeds to explain why he's determined to cry unto God. He says, I'm, gonna, I'm determined I'm going to cry unto God, and here's why. But as you can see in verse 2, the psalmist Asaph refuses the comfort that God is providing. Now drop down to verse 10, because verse 10 is what we'll refer to as the pivot point. That's where the entire psalm turns. Now we didn't read the entire psalm, but that's where it turns. And it turns there because it turns from a description or an experience of darkness and sorrow into now the psalmist Asaph describing gladness and praise. So the first part tells us this. It tells us of sorrow that has overwhelmed the soul. And folks, I am not discounting. I am not discounting in any way, shape, or form. There are sorrows in this life that overwhelm the soul. There is no question about that. But the second part of the psalm gives us a song in which the outcome of what Asaph has now realized and remembered and now he is seeing, he is seeing that God is in control. He is enthroned. The second is that song which overcomes his own sorrow and realizes his soul's been overwhelmed. And he says, but who is great like our God? We go one step further. Again, in the first part of the psalm, a man is pouring out his sorrow. He's pouring out his soul. The difference in the first part as a part of the second part is here Asaph is brooding over his own trouble. He may be, and I'm going to use the terminology, he might be pouting just a little bit. And he's refusing God's sovereign comfort. Now again, you and I sit here today, maybe in our comfortable homes, and we say, why in the world would Asaph refuse sovereign comfort? And I'm looking at each one of us today saying, we have all been guilty of this, where God says, I want to comfort you, here's my comfort, and we say, I refuse. Because even in our sorrow, we sometimes refuse to be comforted by a sovereign God. Someone might say, what kind of sense does that make? That's what I say. What sense does it make to refuse comfort? Now, again, I began by saying almost every believer wants God's comfort. But yet, when the time comes, why do we refuse it? Bringing this down even a little bit further, we're kind of stair-stepping down and bringing it right down to a practical application. In the first half, Asaph's self is the predominant picture. In the second half of the psalm, a sovereign God is seen in His glory. Self will blind you to the sovereignty and the comfort of God. Self will do it. Self will blind you. Now, it doesn't blind God's sovereignty. It blinds you to the sovereignty of God. You'll notice in those first 12 verses, and if you're paying attention, you'll notice the use of the personal pronoun I and my drives the whole cry. Asaph says I. Asaph says my. It occurs, I don't, don't hold me perfectly to this, I counted and I counted 22 times. And there are 11 references in that same amount, in those first 12 verses, references to God by name or title or pronoun. In the second half of the psalm, which we didn't even read, there's only three personal references and 24 mentions of God. That's pretty telling. You see, once Asaph got his eyes off of self and saw the glory of God, he began to realize God's sovereign comfort. So the message of Psalm 77 is that when we dwell on sorrow and we refuse to see God, only desire to see ourselves, we're refusing to be comforted. Yet if we truly see God, we are able to sing His praises even on the darkest day. I mentioned verse 10 being the pivot because I want you to notice what he says. And I said, this is my infirmity. 
but I will remember. Now, in the King James Version of the Bible, I don't know all the other translations, how it words this. I just know this one. It's in italics, which means it was added by the translators to give us more clarity. So if you take that out, and I said this is my infirmity, the years of the, the right hand of the Most High. It's a declarative statement, even if you don't take it there. But I want you to notice Asaph's words, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Here's what he simply means. Asaph was able to begin singing praises even in dark days because he was brought to remembrance and was reminded that the very years of our life are held in God's sovereign providence. And folks that come to this church and attend this church have heard me say this so many times. There is nothing that can happen to you that God is not in control over and he does not allow and ordain. Nothing. Our humanity says, but what about this circumstance? What about that? If you believe in sovereignty, which the Bible clearly teaches, and we have to understand, nothing can happen that's outside of God's sovereign hand. That means this. That means even in the darkest night, there's a light shining. Even in the darkest night, there's a light shining. And because there's a light shining, even in the dark, there should be a song of praise on our lips. So that first heading, we, must re- we, we as His people often refuse to be comforted by a sovereign God. Number two, we must realize a sovereign God wants to comfort His people. A sovereign God wants to comfort His people. We must realize that. It's amazing to me that we have to be reminded of these truths, but yet we do. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. And as we read this morning again, not a full exposition here, but I want us to look at the first 10 verses of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, notice this, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, which are in all, Achaia, grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and, you might want to mark this, the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all, you might circle the word all, our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them, you might circle that, to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, I think I need to read that again. As the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. That means if you're in Christ, there is suffering going on right now. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast. Knowing that as ye are partakers of the suffering, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Paul says, knowing that you're suffering, you will also be part of the consoling. Man, that's good. (laughs) That's good. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves. Oh, that's so important. We should not trust in ourselves. Remember Asaph, who refused to be comforted. But in God, you might circle that phrase, but in God, which raiseth the dead, this God we've learned about as we studied through 1 Thessalonians, the resurrection, the promise of his coming, who delivered us from so great a death, that spiritual death, and doth deliver, means he's continuing to deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. The second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians was evidently 
the result or the outcome of the first letter. Hence, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In other words, Paul continued based on what he'd already taught in 1st Corinthians. But Paul opens up with his usual introduction. He says, he emphasizes his apostleship by the will of God. Even Paul right there is acknowledging, I'm an apostle by the sovereign will of God. Paul is saying, I didn't declare myself to be an apostle. Nobody told me to become an apostle. I didn't set out as my life calling to be an apostle. I'm an apostle by the sovereign will of God. And he gives his usual greeting of reminding them of all of why this is. Grace be to you. Paul always begins his letters by acknowledging grace. And he almost always acknowledges the fact that he's an apostle by the will of God. What does that tell us? That tells us that God, that Paul believes that everything that God has done with him is a result of God's sovereignty. He writes in these first 10 verses about some trouble. I would say not just trouble, great trouble. He uses terminology like we were pressed out of measure. Uh, We were above strength. We despaired even of our life. In other words, he's saying we were at the place where I'm not even sure we were going to make it. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. And then he turns it into not only were we in trouble physically, we're in trouble spiritually. Without God, without hope, we were... We had nothing to trust in except ourselves. And friends, I want you to understand something. Trust in yourselves will always end up at a dead end. If you're trusting yourself for anything, you are going to end up at a dead end. But Paul says, listen, it was God who delivered us from so great a death. It was God who continues to deliver. And it's in God that we trust that he will deliver us. As Paul writes of these times of great trouble, which he had gone through, he rejoiced in the comfort that had come to him. Notice Paul doesn't say, I rejoiced in the fact that the suffering passed me by or the affliction passed me by, but that while I was suffering, while I was being afflicted, I understood and realized and experienced the real sovereign comfort of God. He's saying, I actually felt it. But then here's the kicker of the whole thing. He says, I felt it in order that I might be able to comfort others. This is the part that stops people dead in their tracks when they say, why am I suffering? Why am I afflicted? And Paul writes it right here on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, so that you might be able to comfort others. Paul now, because he had suffered, had the ability to comfort others going through their trials. Notice he attached in his opening grace and peace. Grace and peace are always connected. Grace comes first and then peace follows. There is no peace without grace. Because peace without grace is a peace that is temporary, it is fleeting, it isn't real, and it will not last. Where does grace and peace come from? from God our Father and, it's what it says, from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no grace apart from Christ. There is no peace apart from Christ. The Father is full of love, full of compassion, full of mercy, full of long-suffering, full of grace, full of peace to His people. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ is always the channel or the conduit in which these things from God the Father flow. So what we understand, again, look at verse 10. Who delivered us? Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver? This text brings Paul reminding us of the past, the present, and the future. All things are presently before us, and it reminds us that God has delivered us in the past, will deliver us in the present, and will deliver us in the future. You only have to think in the recesses of your own memory how many times this sovereign God has delivered you from trouble. He's delivered you primarily from yourself. Your self-reliance. Now, I believe the Corinthians took Paul's words literally as he wrote them. I believe that as he wrote them, they heard what he was saying, and they could read it, and even themselves could say, listen, this God 
has literally delivered me from physical death. He's delivered us from terrible sickness. We have a greater deliverance than even that. We've experienced deliverance from what we should have deserved, what we still deserve. It's we deserve to be separated from God in a place called hell from all of eternity, yet we've been delivered from that. But that means we've also been delivered that even during times now of despair and trouble and affliction and suffering and temptation and trials, we may not always fully recognize it. We may not want to recognize like Asaph we just read about in Psalm 77. We might even refuse to be comforted. But understand, God has always delivered His people and He has always supplied their needs. As we learned in our study in 1 Thessalonians, we are always as believers looking forward to the perfect deliverance when Jesus Christ comes again. He will deliver us again. How do I know that? How am I so sure? Because the Bible says He will deliver His people. He's delivered us already. So give Him the praise for doing what He said He would do. He's delivering us even now. So praise Him now for the mercies, even in this moment, in these hours of, by the way, inconvenience is what these are. Inconvenience. And yes, it is a serious time, but understand, most of us are just being inconvenienced. This is not a time for us to look and say, boy, we are so afflicted. We are so persecuted. No, we're just being inconvenienced. There are really three things from this this text. We will have tribulation as long as we're in this world. You're always going to be in danger while you're here. But Paul says there is a deliverance while we're in this world. We can always, number two, we can always expect God to display His delivering grace. And thirdly, our whole life should be filled with praise because God has delivered us. But I want us to go back just to one more, back to just the center part of this verse. And again, we're going to come to this text in full exposition most likely during this series. But again, look at verse 4. Who comforted us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble? By the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. What comfort have we been comforted with? Sovereign comfort. How do we comfort others who are going through affliction? Through the sovereign comfort of God. Paul is not saying, you are their source of comfort. God's sovereign comfort is the source of comfort. The same comfort that you received is the same comfort they need. The God of all comfort, Paul speaks of, is teaching us in this text that as we have gone through our own experience of being comforted by this God of all comfort, this sovereign God of comfort in our affliction, it enables us the ability to comfort someone else. Someone told me a number of months ago, and I don't tell this because I want any any recognition for this, but somebody said, you and your family have gone through so many things that relate to what we're talking about. And all I can tell you is that that is this passage on display. There are things that our family has gone through that your family has not gone through, or you as an individual have not gone through, but have been demonstrations of God's delivering grace His sovereign comfort that God did not just randomly allow them to cross our paths. He put us into their paths in order that we might understand exactly what they're dealing with. That's what this means. So that we look back on our afflictions and our troubles and we say, my afflictions, my trials, my tribulations are at the hands of a sovereign God, but the same God who allows it is the same God who comforts and He comforts me in order that I might comfort Someone else. We've gone from reading in Asaph there in Psalm 77 of refusing to be comforted to Paul saying, here's why you should be comforted. Now, to Asaph's credit, he came to the realization before he ended that psalm. But understand something, Paul recognized the comfort that had been given to him by the prayers of the Corinthians. That's what Paul's referring to in our text. You prayed for me 
And now I want to encourage you as you're going through a time of trouble. So number two, we need, we need and must realize that a sovereign God wants to comfort His people. And then number three, and this will be familiar to us because we've dealt with this, it's been a number of weeks ago. Number three, we need to be reminded that a sovereign God wants His people to not only be comforted, but He wants His people to be of good cheer. It's possible to be comforted and not cheerful. Now, again, these are difficult truths. This is not something I'm looking at and saying, you know what, by the time we get to the end of this, we're all going to have this nailed down, settled, and I'm not ever going to struggle with this again. Listen, these are very, very difficult principles. Every one of us, I think, have things running through our mind saying, what if, and what about this, and what about that? And even ourselves, we, 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 we hear sad news, and we've heard sad news recently. I'm not going into detail, but we've heard news that appears to be how in the world can this be part of what God is doing? Right? I'm not going to be able to give you an explanation for that, nor can you give me an explanation. All we can do is say that God does provide a comfort. All comfort comes from God. But comfort also should be accompanied with cheer, and we need to be reminded of that. In John 16, our church will remember when we went through John 16, and we've been going through during our Sunday worship service, we're going right through the book of John. This has been a little while ago, but in John 16, beginning about verse 17, and some of you will remember these messages we began dealing with and preaching as Jesus was telling his disciples that your very sorrow will turn to joy. And you'll remember what I said that he didn't say your sorrow will end. He said your sorrow, your actual sorrow will turn to joy. He told his disciples in verse 20 of that chapter that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned to joy. He gave the illustration of a woman who's in, in, in labor, getting ready to give birth and how she's in anguish. But when that child is born, suddenly now what was sorrowful now becomes joyful. That's what Jesus was writing about. And I want to draw our attention to verse 27. In that same text, here's what he said. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And here's how he ended that chapter. These things, which means the entirety of what Jesus has been teaching his disciples, have I spoken unto you, that in me... In me, this is a sovereign God speaking. Jesus Christ is God. He says, in me, ye might have peace. In the world, ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Notice he doesn't even say, I will overcome the world. This one, Jesus even goes to the cross. He says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. In Jesus himself, friends, there is always a peace that passes all human understanding. If Jesus Christ himself had peace, we, if he did not, rather, if he didn't have peace, you and I couldn't have peace at all. If Jesus Christ had declared here and he had said, in me, there is no peace, then you and I would be absolutely hopeless and you would have every reason to be absolutely frightened beyond any of your imagination. If there's not peace in Christ, this world, your eternal destiny, you ought to be afraid, afraid, afraid. So afraid you ought to be immobilized. So afraid you don't know where to turn. But if you are in Jesus Christ, you have peace. You see, God's peace is related 
to his sovereign comfort. Why can he provide comfort is because he is peace. And peace is a characteristic or the result of comfort. No man ever could do anything to take away the peace in which Jesus Christ declared himself to be. You realize no man, no person could have turned Jesus Christ away from anything he had resolved to do. He could not be discouraged. He could not be deterred. His spirit was not about changing this world. Folks, we've got to get this in our mind. The mission of the church is not to change the world. It is to point them to he who has overcome the world. The mission of the church is not to make the world a better place to live. It's to proclaim and preach the truth of a sovereign God, the sovereign God of comfort. If Jesus himself had peace in himself, he declares to his disciples, I desire that you should have that same peace. Believe it or not, our Lord desires to see his people calm and firm and steadfast and sure. And I would even use the term happy if it's biblical happiness. Happiness in Christ is not wrong. Happiness in this world is wrong if, we, if we're finding our happiness in what the world provides. But if you're happy in Jesus, you should be happy in Jesus. You should be hilariously happy in Jesus. You should be at a place where your happiness is not a result of your circumstances, but your happiness is a result of being in Christ. We ought to have a calm heart because of the peace that's found in Christ. We should remember that there is an infinite God who knows, controls, and rules all things according to His purposes and according to His plan for His own glory. When an emergency arises, when trouble comes, when affliction comes, we should not be tossed to and fro like the wave. We should be fixed. We shouldn't be like that which is blown away by the storm. We should be set and steadfast and sure. Not because we're strong, not because we're theologians, but because of the comfort that God has said, I want to give my people. It's an amazing thing when you start reading that God, the creator and the controller of all things, wants his people comforted, content, firm, happy. This is the God of all creation. The same God who led the psalmist to say, what is man? Do you ever think about the reality? What is man that God even pays any attention to us? He doesn't pay attention to us because we're valuable. He doesn't pay attention because we offer something. He doesn't even pay attention to us because by us praising him makes God something even better. He would still be God without us. If every single person in this world turned their back on Jesus Christ, turned their back on God, he would still be God and he'd still be good and he'd still be sovereign. The problem comes in is when we refuse to be comforted by this God that says, listen, if you will look to me, get your eyes off of yourself and look to me. Quit refusing my comfort. Quit looking to the world to get your cues as to how safe or how wrong or how right it is. Listen, I guarantee you, go and get your facts or stories from the world and dwell on them, and you will be depressed. You're going to be depressed, you're going to be confused, and it's all going to be about because yourself is being hindered. Our greatest, that's one of our greatest issues is this bothers us because our selfish desires and our selfish things, we just want what we want. And maybe, just maybe, God in His sovereignty has allowed this to stop us long enough to say, listen to me. You're living for yourself. 
And again, all of us are guilty of this. We don't realize and we don't admit how selfish we are. It's the same reason why we refuse to be comforted because we're that selfish. We're that prideful. When we use terminology like this, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. That's selfish. God knows exactly what you're going through because God is the sovereign God. of He's the God of all comfort. When we pray to God and we say, God, if you can, what do you mean if you can? There is no ifs with God. There is not any addendums. There is no uh, appendixes where he has to, get, he has to say, here's, here's what I'm doing. No, I'm God. God knows that we are not always going to be strong. Believer who's under the sound of my voice, you're not impressing anybody by declaring that you're always strong because we know that's not true. You're not always strong. You, you say you're strong, but we're not always strong. God knows that. That's why God declares you need a God of all comfort. You need a sovereign God. But we should never lack in joy. God's sovereignty shouldn't make us something to despise God about. It should actually bring us peace. Now, those that are outside of Christ, those who are sinning for themselves, living for themselves, no desire, they're, they're, they're turning their back on God, they're refusing God, they don't acknowledge God, they're living for themselves, there, there ought to be some fear. There, they ought to be very uncomfortable. And again, it's not that we wish uncomfort on anybody, but they can't find comfort because the only source of comfort they can look to is themselves. People say, why are people who are without Christ acting the way they are now? They're acting that way because their sources of comfort and hope and joy have been taken away from them. They don't have it anymore. But if you're in Christ, your true source of comfort and joy has not been taken away. It's still there. You're just being inconvenienced. God desires to comfort his people. May we never be guilty of refusing his comfort like we saw in Psalm 77. May we remember, number two, that we are brought through and two afflictions in order that we might comfort someone else with the same sovereign comfort that we are aware of. And then number three, we need to be reminded that God not only wants to comfort his people, but he wants his people to be of good cheer. He bids us over and over again, and we're going to see through our study of Isaiah 40, over and over again, he tells Isaiah, comfort my people. But here's what you're going to find to be true. Every time that God tells Isaiah to tell him to comfort the people, he always tells them to look to God. Look at God's majesty. Look at God's glory. He never once tells the people, look to yourselves. He says, no, I want you to look to these truths. Number one, God's word will always stand forever. God's hand is perfectly strong. Look to the majesty and the power of God. Realize there is nothing that can compare to God. And he finishes the entire chapter by reminding them of the greatness of God's might. There is nothing that God cannot do. Why? Because he's sovereign. He controls, he rules, he is ordained, and there is nothing that can happen to you that he does not allow. I don't mean to be irreverent, but God has never been the victim of a sneak attack. Some people preach a God that was taken off guard or surprised. Some might even say, and I'm talking in Christian circles, where was God? There are believers right now in this time who are falsely, because they disbelieve in the sovereignty of God, actually asking the question, where is God? Why is God allowing our churches to be closed? Why is God... God is still right where he always was. Nothing is hindering, nothing is hindering God's word. We're going to learn a lot of great truths from Psalm 40, or Isaiah 40 rather. But as we finish, consider this. Consider that a sovereign God, that he calls his people, in whom he wishes to comfort. Think about that. A sovereign God, calls to individuals, he calls his people, and he says, I want to comfort you. 
God has a people who are the objects of His electing love, His goodness, and His favor. He has taken an unworthy, unvaluable people. Yes, not popular. You and I are not valuable to God. God didn't save you because of your value. He took an unworthy people and He said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you recipients of my goodness and my grace. And we say, why would God do that? And there is no biblical scholar, no preacher, no evangelist, no missionary, no theologian who has the answer to what I just said. Other than the grace of God. Oh, you're going to hear gospels being preached. They're not gospels. They said, God saved you because you value, you add value to God. You don't add value to God. But we're going to learn together through this series that He is in fact the God of all comfort. And He's the God of all comfort because He's a sovereign God. And as we've learned today, because He's a sovereign God, He provides a perfect, sovereign comfort. We're going to close in prayer in just a moment. And just a reminder for our church family that is listening. And I see many of you on today. Just a reminder that here at 1130, uh, we will resume our live stream for our Sunday worship service. We're going to continue in our study in the book of John. We'll be in John 19, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And then also for our men, this is the week that we would have held our Saturday morning theology this coming Saturday. And as we did in the month of March, I'm planning on doing it in the same manner in which we did last month. Uh, We'll be online at 9 o'clock. That's different than our normal meeting time, which when we gathered here would have been at 8. That live stream will start at 9 o'clock, and we'll continue dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, So you should be in chapter 2 of your book, uh, chapter 2 in the study guide, and then also read uh, the second article uh, in the Free Grace Broadcaster dealing with sanctification. So our our men know who that is. Uh, Ladies, you are also invited if you'd like to join in for that broadcast on Saturday. Uh, you're welcome to do that as well. And then also don't forget Wednesday, we'll live stream our worship service at 7 o'clock and we'll continue through our study uh, in the book of Proverbs and we'll be dealing with uh, the subject Wednesday of the thoughts of the righteous. All right, so we're going to pray and we'll end our time for this hour and then we'll be uh, back live streaming at 1130. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for these wonderful truths that we've read about this morning. And Father, I pray that 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 phrase, that expression, the God of all comfort, I pray, Lord, that that would just continue to resonate in our heart and in our, our mind today. And that, Father, we would not easily forget it. We are grateful that the Bible does teach that there is a God who is sovereign. We thank you and we praise you for your sovereignty. I pray that we will never be those who who deny and disbelieve the sovereignty of God because it is our greatest source of hope and peace and comfort. Father, we know that nothing has taken you by surprise and Lord, as your will sees fit and your purposes and your plans are being fulfilled and they're still being fulfilled, Lord, we pray and we look forward to that day when we're allowed to gather once again together. When biblical wisdom clearly states that it's safe for us to be together again. Lord, I pray that you would keep us, keep, us rem- keep us mindful of the great truths we've heard today already. Father, we look forward to being together again at 1130. And Lord, I do pray for each and every church that is standing for the truth, is preaching the word of God. I pray that you would just equip those men. I pray that you'd be with those congregations as they continue to do your will. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.